Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's 4th of July weekend, which means we have a holiday clips show for you. With museums reopening in some parts of the country, we've pulled two interviews from our archives to share with you this week. First up, Buford Smith. He's featured in two exhibitions that are on view at recently reopened American art museums. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the final venue for Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. It was curated by Mark Godfrey and Zoe Whitley, and it'll be on view in Houston through August 30th. The exhibition catalog was published by the Tate. Amazon offers it for $28. Buford Smith is also included in Working Together, Lewis Draper and the Kamoingi Workshop at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. The museum is open to members now and reopens to the general public on July 4th. Working Together will remain on view in Richmond through October 18th. It was curated by Sarah Eckhart, who was on the program a couple months ago. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. The show is accompanied by one of the very best catalogs of the year. Amazon offers it for $41. Speaking of Soul of a Nation, we've had a number of Soul of a Nation artists on the program over the last nine years, including Betty Saar, Jack Witten, who's been on twice, Howardina Pindell, Barkley L. Hendricks, Sengan Ngudi, and Melvin Edwards. We've also offered programs on major solo exhibitions of work by Soul of a Nation artists who are no longer with us, including Norman Lewis, Noah Purifoy, and Charles White. We'll have a link to all of those programs on this week's show page. On the second segment, Hedda Stern, on view now in Des Moines. But first, Buford Smith, after a break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer, is Terry Adkins, Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Buford Smith, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. How did the Black Photographer's Annual get started? How did it come to exist? It, it came about during, say, 1970, around 1970, during that time, I was an offset printer 
And I printed a friend of mine printed a little booklet of, of my photographs out of, the, out of appreciation of my work. And the book was called Photographic Images. And I'm jumping a little that I just recently saw it on, uh, I think it was Amazon, not Amazon, but eBay is one of those places where the little booklet sold for $200. So I, I was shocked. And that goes back years ago, so that this goes to show you. But out of the little booklet that it was, a, it was a, say, a five, five by seven by eight and a half, and I did photographs of my pictures of a friend of mine named John Dahl. He printed the little booklet for me. And I dedicated it to Roy DeCarava, who was my friend and, and uh, mentor, and also my friend Frank Sawyer, who owned the print shop. So out of that came the Black Photographer's Annual. Maybe about two years later, I mentioned to the members of Kamongi, which I was a member of Kamongi during that time, that I would like to do a book on Kamongi photographers. And I figured out it would cost maybe like $10 per photographer. I think it was about 12 members during this time. So some of them came up with the money and some didn't. And I collected some photographs and I did some shooting uh, copies, made copy negatives to, to, you know, to go to the printer, et cetera, to my friend John Dahl. And it just, for whatever reason, it fell apart and it never happened. So a friend of mine, Jimmy Manis, he was a member of Kamonki. He formed a group called, not a group, but a business called Jammy Productions out in Brooklyn. And during this time, he was doing posters, you know, Black Power posters, uh, the Olympics with the fists up, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a section of, of the loft out here in Brooklyn where I was dealing with photography. So I told Jimmy, I said, well, the uh, Black Power posters, he was going to colleges and selling them different universities during, uh, during this time. But for whatever reason, they stopped selling. So I told Jim, I said, you know what, maybe we should try doing the, uh, the Kamongi photographs that I collected years ago. And he said, oh, yeah, great. So I said, what, what we should do is call it the Black Photographers Annual, you know, based on pho Pop Photos Annual. They, they would come out with an annual every year. It was called Popular Photography Annual. So I sort of said, well, let's call it Black Photographer's Annual. So he said, great. So I started collecting photographs from, you know, members of Kamongi. And Jimmy was good at try uh, is getting money. I have not been very good at asking people for money, but that was Jimmy's end. So we went around to a couple of people. And they said, well, you know, you only have New York photographers. Only a, a few photographers in this. So you got to do a, a broader base. So that was one of the problems that was the main one was getting getting money, really. And so a friend of mine, Frank Sawyer, as I mentioned earlier, who owned the uh, print shop, he said, well, you know what, Buford? I know someone who would give you guys at least about $10,000 to do the annual, get it started. And, you know, we, he set up a meeting with uh, Jimmy and I. And so we went up, up to Hall to meet this guy. And he said, OK, I like you guys' idea of doing this Black Photographer's Annual. And I would give you the money, but you would have to do some work for me. And we said, what's that? He said, we have to do, uh, do some pornographic movies because Jimmy was a filmmaker. And, and we looked at each other. You know, we'd like to see the, the ladies, but, you know, we don't want to get involved with, you know, pornographic movies, et cetera, et cetera. So the guy said, well, you know, that's that's my deal. You know, I can definitely give you the money. But you have to do this for me. So we said no. And this particular person, he was a, a like a hustler kind of guy. And he was just the definitely stereotype mobster, big tall guy. He was at least six two, cigar, 
had expensive clothes, and he eventually died in prison. So that uh, tells you about him to a certain extent. <laughs> but we refused that, and, uh, you know, the $10,000 offer. So the uh, Black Photographers Annual was put on the black the back burner. And Jimmy Manis went to uh, Guyana, South America. And so I had all the photographs for the annual, et cetera, et cetera. And my dear friend, who's deceased now, Joe Crawford, he said, Buford, if I came up with the money, would you still uh, want to do the annual? So I said, sure. So Joe and I worked out something. So I gave him the uh, images, et cetera. So maybe about three months later, Joe Crawford came back and said, Buford, I got the money. Let's do the annual. So that's how it was started. So I always tell people that without Joe Crawford, the annual, the Black Photographers Annual would, would have never been done because he came up with the money. He got it through friends, et cetera, and, and, and so forth with the money. And Joe was a draftsman. He wasn't a photographer. You know, he dabbed, uh, he had a camera, but he didn't really take any pictures or anything. So it's his love for photography, why Joe uh, got involved with the Black Photographers Annual. And he brought on board Joe uh, Walker, who was a, a writer for Mohammed Speaks, you probably know about Mohammed Speaks, a black Muslim newspaper. So Joe Walker knew people through Mohammed Speaks, plus he was a writer for one of the union newspapers. I can't think of which one, maybe 1199 or something like that. So Joe Walker took care of all the PR work, and he got in touch with the writers. He got in touch with James Baldwin and also Toni Morrison, bless her soul, for giving us the, the, the send-off with the Black Photographers Annual. She was very helpful. And Joe Walker also got Johnny Williams. In fact, I, I think, I, yeah, I suggested Johnny Williams, and uh, and I also suggested Clayton Rowley. And Joe, uh, Joe Walker got in touch with those people. And I was a little annoyed at Joe Walker. When he interviewed Johnny Williams, he went over to his house in Jersey, and I was annoyed. I said, you know what? I really respect Johnny Williams. Why didn't you tell me so I, so I could go over there and take some pictures? So I never forgave Joe Walker for that. But he said, oh, the next time you, you can go when I interview Gordon Parks. But Joe Crawford uh, ended up interviewing uh, Gordon Parks. So there are four issues of the Black Photographer's Annual. In the, in the first one, there are five listed picture editors. And, and by the fourth one, there are fewer picture editors. You know, was it a collaborative effort of selecting pictures? Was it was it mostly you? How did you know what what I'm asking very awkwardly is how did you or you guys decide what would be in the book? Okay, let me let me back up with the editors. Joe Crawford left all the photography part to me. He handled the business end, and I you know dealt with the photographers. I chose all the uh, the editors from first volume to the uh, the fourth volume. But the first volume, all the uh, editors were members of Kamongi except one, and that was Vance Allen. And I chose Vance Allen because the uh, Kamongi members, we all thought I liked, you know, to a certain extent. We all street photographers, uh, some of us did abstract, et cetera, et cetera. So I said that Vance Allen would be a good mix in the group, and which he was. And that's how it came about with the first editors of the book. And it was a collaborative effort. But what happened in the end, it would it would boil down to Joe Crawford and I. We would be the one who would uh, have the final say on the photographs. 
And what happened a lot of times was that Joe and I would play good cop and bad cop because, you know, most of those photographers in the, in, in the annuals, we knew personally as friends, we, you know, you see people around. So they would say, well, why wasn't my photograph included? And I said, well, you know, I don't know, but you got to see Joe Crawford. Then Joe would say, well, you, you got to see Buford, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we played good cop and bad cop with that. So it, you can keep that uh, on tape because everybody knows by now it's been 40 years or whatever it's, it's been. So that's how we did that. And with the last issue, I'll get to the third issue. I told Joe that the times are changing as far as uh, women's rights, et cetera, et cetera, that we should have a woman on the... Uh, selection committee with the photographs. So he thought of Jeannie Matusame Ash. I don't think she was Ash during that time. She might have been, but Jeannie Matusame. I knew her through Frank Stewart because when I taught at Cooper Union in the 70s that Frank Stewart and Jeannie, they were students at Cooper Union. So I knew Jeannie through Frank Stewart. So but I don't know what happened with that, but I don't know if Joe could get in touch with her or whatever, but uh, Joe uh, chose someone else, another woman that he knew that worked with Scholastic, Scholastic uh, uh, Magazine. So he chose her. So that added a, a woman to the uh, uh, photography editors. But from the very first issue, we always had a woman. In fact, it was always me and Smith. She's been in every volume from number one to the to number four. And we did choose women in that sense that, oh, we got to have a woman. It only happened in the end when I suggested to Joe that we have to have a woman as a picture editor. That's how it came about with the woman being. And we had to get rid of Sean Walker. That That's another conversation. But we dropped him to get the woman editor on the, in the last annual. The, the pictures in the first annual in particular are, are very rooted in, in street photography. Was that an intentional editorial decision, or is that just what the people you knew were, were shooting, were interested in? Well, it was just what the people we knew were shooting. And in fact, a lot of the photographers, we didn't know. Because what happened, Joe Walker would put ads in black newspapers for black photographers to submit their work. So that's how it came about. And if you notice, well... For me, I think Volume One is is a, is a masterpiece as far as going. It's very eclectic. It's not just about jazz musicians or street photography, etc. It's it's abstract. It's 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 everything as far as I'm concerned. But we just told photographers it, you didn't have to shoot the so-called ghetto or jazz musicians or, or whatever. Only thing we ask you to do is submit your best work, and then after they submitted the work. Then we chose what we felt would would flow with the with the book, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't about you know we just got into photojournalism, whatever. We just chose what the photographers were submitting during that that time. I'm glad you you raised that point that it's not just pictures of jazz musicians. The the first volume especially serves as a rejoinder to cliches about Black American life and existence. It it is full of art historical references. There's a, there's a picture by by Roger Tucker of a ferry in in Newark, New Jersey, that is a riff on a John Sloan painting. The entire publication is in some ways an argument for a certain Americanness that is not confined to one community. Was that intentional? 
must have been. Well, it it, it was because we not that we had to approve anything, but black photographers up to this day, and you can keep the tape rolling or whatever, is that we are ghettoized to a certain extent. Now I'm looking at the first annual. Now I'm looking at a photograph by John Pendyhues. Page fifty-eight. Yeah. Is now this is something that was being done in 72 by John Pendyhue. So it's not about, you know, the ghetto and jazz musicians or whatever. So John was doing doing this kind of work back then. So we tried to have a, you know, eclectic, you know, book of photographs. And I, I think we did it. That's why I say this was, to me, is, is volume one is a masterpiece. The first two pictures in volume one are, are portraits. This is a time in American photography when when street photography is still a big deal and you could have chosen anything to open the book with but you chose to open the book with two portraits was was that a conscious decision where you did, did you intentionally try to include portraits I wish I could answer that more succinctly but the only thing that Joe Crawford and I and Sean Walker what we chose were the photographs. The layout was done by Vernon Grant. So you picked the pictures and other people picked the order. Right. We picked the pictures and Vernon Grant was the art director. He was the art director at, I think, CBS. If I'm not mistaken, he did the cover for Bruce Springsteen, the famous photograph with the guitar behind what was shown. Oh, Born to Run, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Born to Run. I think Vernon Grant did that or he had something to do with that, that photograph. So Vernon Grant did the, uh, co you know, connecting the pictures. We chose them, but then Vernon Grant did the layout. All except my essay of the Martin Luther King. I, I did that myself. So I'm guilty of, of that one. We're going to come to that in a minute. That's in the second volume. As you look back at the four volumes, do you see anything changing in terms of what photographers were looking at or maybe in terms of what y'all were selecting? Yes, you, you mean in, in, in reference to the photographers of today? No, I mean across the four volumes of, of the annual. From the, from the beginning of the annual to volume four, were photographers interested in the same thing or did you, did you see a progression of interests happening? When we got to volume maybe two, maybe three, but probably two, I told Joe then that I saw the quality of work by the photographers that were submitting work was not up to par. And I told Joe that we were on a slippery slope now because the work is not that good. And we could not keep publishing Anthony Barbosa, Azure Cowens, or Sean Walker, or Ming Smith in every volume. I mean, we'd like to, but then it looks more like a uh, some sort of a, a boys club and we wanted to branch out, but the work just wasn't there uh, because I felt that there weren't that many uh, photographers, black photographers out during this time, but you know, they, they stormed the gates now, but during this time, they, they weren't that many out that we felt that was doing quality work that who had submitted the work to us. You know, one of the best parts of, of, of each annual are the portfolios devoted to single photographers. How were those photographers and those photo essays chosen? Well, what happened was 
we never gave her, like, say, submit 10 photographs or 12 or whatever. What we would do is go through a body of their work, and I think we would pick out maybe six. I got to go through the annual. I think it ended up being four, four or six photographs by each photographer who had a portfolio. And we put it together to see if this worked as a strong body of work. And that's how we came up with doing the portfolios. If you notice, at the, the last volume, volume four, we only had 26 photographers. In volume one, we had 49. And volume two, we had 51. Volume three, we had 40. And volume four, only 26. As, as I mentioned, I think volume two, that's when I saw that the work was going down, the quality of the work. The, there weren't that many photographers out there, and we couldn't keep publishing Ming, Tony, uh, Alpha, Noir, et cetera. So that's when we, at Volume 4, we called it quits. One of the best portfolios in any of the annuals is your portfolio from Volume 2. The check is in the mail. <laughs> it's a really striking series of images, and I was hoping you would you could talk us through the essay, how you conceived it, and how it reads. And it starts with a photograph looking through a baked window. So I think this was done over a two- or three-day period. It was done basically in Harlem, in Central Park. And I started off with the reef because, you know, the assassination, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, picture, that picture of Dr. King with, with the reef is... An interesting picture for lots of reasons. It's interesting formally because the blinds behind the wreath and Dr. King's picture push the wreath and the and the photograph of Dr. King up against the picture plane. And then you have cropped the name of the bank. It, the name of the bank is the Freedom National Bank of something, probably the Freedom National Bank of New York. But you've cropped out most of the word freedom which strikes me as a really interesting and telling decision. Well, it was telling in the sense that it was, I won't say it because I've always been a person who, I'm not from the school of not cropping photographs. You know, I'm not Cartier Bresson or whoever. But that was done intentionally that there's really was no, no freedom, really. So you did catch on to that. Most people, <laughs> so they, they didn't see it, but black folks, they, they saw it. But the uh, white editors that I, I took it around to, they, I don't think they saw that. Maybe they did. I don't know. But maybe that's one of the reasons why they rejected it. But that's another conversation. But, yeah, that was, that was an intentional that, you know, here's a man who talked about peace and, you know, peace philosophy and Muhammad Gandhi the philosophy, and he was he was murdered. I won't even use the term assassinate. I would say murdered. And so this this Black Photographer's Annual Volume Two is 1974. So is this a picture that you'd had around for a while, or was the wreath still up? No, that that was all a, a photograph during that time. So the second the second picture in in the portfolio is a man leaning against a a mailbox and and you know, which I'm not sure they exist anymore, but, you know, the, the, the round-topped mailbox that was so familiar. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, that everything, all these photographs were taken in Harlem within, within that week of the assassination of, of Martin Luther King. What about the man in the, in the post office box appealed to you? That appealed to me because it, it was about sadness. 
that he, you know, the sadness of Martin Luther King being assassinated, or murdered, however you want to phrase it. And the woman with the button, the Martin Luther King button, it was just uh, about uh, integration or, you know, a, a white person involved with the assassination of, the sorrow of the assassination of Martin Luther King being murdered. And the other photograph of the, uh, now this was, I don't think this was necessarily taken in that week of the assassination of Martin Luther King, the church photograph. So this is of a church window, maybe not a window, maybe a painted panel, and there are two holes in it, and it's a crudely drawn image of Jesus but with, with his arms extended, but there's no cross there. <laughs> right, no, there's no, no crop there. And that was a gift in the sense that it went along with, you know, Reverend Martin Luther King and the spirituality and believing in God, etc., uh, someone threw a brick or whatever through through the window here. I don't know if it's a window or what, oh, just a screen up there or something. But that fell in line with the assassination assassination of Reverend uh, uh, King as being a spiritual leader and believed in God, et cetera, et cetera. And you see what happens with him. And, of course, the, the, the police out there, they're keeping, you know, the neighborhood quiet and no rioting, et cetera, et cetera. Let me let me let me go back to the the picture of of Jesus in the church for a moment. It, it's a picture that draws a really clear, in the context of the portfolio, it draws a really clear relationship between human failing and viciousness and the maltreatment of of two leaders, Dr. King and and Jesus. And so, what I think I hear you saying is that that was the whole point of the picture. That's that's why the picture was a gift. Yes, definitely. You put words in my mouth, but I'll accept them. <laughs> but uh, the, the spirituality, and here's uh, Jesus, a, a man of peace, and, and this is what you're doing to him. So that was that was all part of it. The the picture on the facing page of, of the, the Jesus in the church picture is a picture of, I don't know, six or eight policemen lined up at, at you know, they look like they're at some kind of event. Some are being very earnest and ramrod straight, and a few are not. Why that picture? Well, the event was that you know, uh, black people in Harlem were, you know, very disgruntled uh, about what was going on, and they were yelling at the, uh, at, the at the cops and, you know, saying, you know, F you, and, uh, you know, you kill more, you know, the, the, the usual, I won't say usual bit, but they were just very unhappy uh, about that. And that's why the cops were there. They were, you know, keeping the peace, allegedly, whatever. Did it matter to you when you made the picture that two things? One, that, that all the cops are white. And secondly, on the left-hand side of the picture, there, there are two cops. One older cop who's kind of slouching with his hand in his pocket with the white handle of his gun prominently portrayed. And a younger cop next to him who is standing at attention. Well, that photograph I was a little leery of taking because I was relatively close and that gun was very prominent and I had to get that gun like that. So I don't know how many photographs I I'm probably just took one. I usually take one photograph of certain images that I, I feel are very strong and not like fillers. But I was relatively close to this policeman and he didn't seem to notice me, but he was so busy watching the other other people, but as you can see on his expression of his face, no one seems to be very upset. They were very mild. So that was that photograph. And the next page, 
this gentleman was, you know, they were, I don't know if they were rioting, but they were disturbing the peace. I don't know. Yeah, let me, let me describe the picture really quickly. It, it's kind of a blurry action image. What appears to be a cop it has a man in his right hand. He's holding the back of his jacket. The man is wearing a hat. His arms are outstretched. And it reads like a police kind of leading a person away, but maybe not in a super aggressive way. Yeah, he was leading him away because this gentleman was yelling uh, something about, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King and getting the people riled up. And the cop just came over and grabbed him and told him to, to move on. And in one of the reviews of this photograph, they mentioned that the cop was white. To me, it's obvious that this was not a white policeman. But I don't know. That's just, I'll, I'll leave that alone. Maybe that would have added to it by him saying the cop was white. But to me, it was, it's, you know, it's obvious that this is a, a black policeman who was leading this man off. The, the next picture on the facing page is is a man crying. It's one of the most emotionally intense pictures in any of the portfolios. Right. This is one of my favorite photographs and one of my uh, iconic images that's been widely published. And the man was crying. What was actually going on here is this was on 125th Street and 7th Avenue. I never will forget this. There was a white delivery man, middle-aged delivery man, he had delivered something to one of the stores there, and the uh, the people w was trying to get to him. And he, this man was crying, don't, don't bother him. Martin Luther King wouldn't want this, so that's why he was crying. He wanted peace, not you know for the for the, the other people to you know to riot or anything. They were throwing rocks and garbage cans at this man, and he hopped on the back of a, a pickup truck, and uh, that's how he escaped the I don't know, term mob. But that's how he escaped the uh, the people who were yelling at him. And this is why that man was crying. He was something that Martin Luther King wouldn't want this. They wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't want you to harm this man. There are other images of him and other people, you know, around this scene. But I edit this one out because this is one of my favorite uh, photographs. Did you print this picture in a way to emphasize the whiteness of his shirt? No. If anything... I held back the uh, the darkness of his face because there's a tear that you can't see it in this in the printing here, in in the actual. I, print. I can see it. Yeah, I can see it in the book. Right. Yeah. Okay. The one I'm looking at, you can't really see it. But no, I I didn't hold back anything except the, his his face because as I said during this time or before, I was a printer and I know how if you make a print. Once the ink hits it, it's going to become darker nine times out of ten, even with Rappaport, with his duotone printing. On, on the next page is, is a pretty great image. I, I, I think it's a little bit funny. It's a man on the back of his jacket. It is referencing Adam, Adam Clayton Powell, the, the Harlem congressman. Why this picture? Well, that was based on Martin Luther King's philosophy of, you know, peace and, you know, and love your fellow man and judge a man by his content and not his, by his color of his skin. And that was to don't, you know, keep the faith, still believe in Martin Luther King. That was another photograph that was a gift. This was taken in front of uh, Mr. Michelle's bookstore on 125th Street and 7th Avenue. I think it was probably taken the same night as the man crying. I would have to go back to my contact sheet. It could be read, uh, you know, because presumably Adam Clayton Powell had these these jackets or whatever they are printed up. Powell was, you know, a major figure, of, of course, but also 
was sometimes seen as, as a bit of an assimilationist. It almost could be read as a picture of, of Powell trying to, to snuggle up to Dr. King's legacy. It could be, but I, I never even thought about anything like that until you just mentioned it. But I, I, I think the people who saw it, but the man who's wearing this jacket has on a, one of the, uh, the uh, Muslim-type caps also. He does. So I, it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of tricky photograph, but it definitely was really geared towards keep the faith, you know, still believe in Martin Luther King out of all by him being even being assassinated. You still keep the faith of, you know, you, your fellow man, love, peace and love. Uh, that's the phrase. They didn't use that phrase then, I don't think. But that's what it really was about. Facing that picture is, you know, a, a classic street photograph. It's a, a man against a bright light and some steam coming up from, I'm guessing, a city street, and he appears to be slouching. No. In fact, I, I, I have to be corrected when I said these photographs were taken in Harlem except the one of the, the woman in Central Park. No, this photograph was taken on Houston Street, and this man was a, a part of a group of men who, I guess, were yeah, homeless, and they were just burning uh, uh, garbage cans with food and trash to keep warm. And this photograph was my comment on the whole thing from James Baldwin, the fire the next time. But obviously, to you, it didn't come out as fire. It just came out something as steam. But I, I saw it as fire, and it was like the fire the next time. So it was connected to Keep the Faith. The page, the last photograph is the fire the next time. So how did the annuals get out into the world? How were they offered? How were they sold? And, and who acquired them? What happened was, you know, I, I still do it to a certain extent. I go to photography shows and go to Barnes and Nobles and Strand bookstore and look through photography books. And we found out that, that light work, they, the, they were the ones who were distributing all the photography, I don't want to say all, majority of photography magazines, uh, books rather. So Joe Crawford got in touch with light work, uh, light impressions, I'm sorry, light impressions. They would, I don't know if they're still in business now or not. They were distributing distributing all the uh, majority of photography books, et cetera, et cetera. So Joe uh, Crawford got in touch with the light work, uh, light impressions, and so they took on the Black Photographers Annual. They did the distribution, and what happened after maybe two volumes or whatever, Joe Crawford said, "You know what, Buford, we can do this ourselves, because the light impressions they were taking uh, 60, 40 percent of the annual." So we said, okay, we'll do it ourselves. So we started distributing the annual ourselves. We had gotten a, a, a lot of publicity and uh, write-ups. We had shows in Russia, France, I think Czechoslovakia. Not too, I don't know if it was Czechoslovakia during this time, but, but all over Europe we had gotten shows. So we were doing the, uh, the publicity ourselves and the distribution. In fact, the annuals were kept at Joe Crawford's house on 55 Hick Street in Brooklyn. And people, when they saw the, you know, the address, they started going to Joe Crawford's house. <laughs> Joe, it's kind of funny. Joe had a three-room apartment, and one room, his bedroom, was full of the annuals. And he said, Buford, you know, everybody's coming to my house. You know, they think this is a big business, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really like Joe Walford, Joe Walker, Joe Crawford, and myself. So. Joe said, you know what, we have to change. Oh, well, I, I'm kind of jumping here, but I just threw that little, little bit in. But we did this ourselves. 
and I have a whole slew of PR work and reviews, et cetera, that we've gotten reviews all over the world concerning the Blackwood Towers Annual. And we didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any either. And it was only selling for, what, five ninety-five or $12 or something during that time. I wanted to ask you about Prentice Polk, P.H. Polk. Virtually all of the pictures in all four annuals are, you know, roughly contemporary to when when the books were printed. Polk was born in the late 19th century in, in Alabama, and I think the pictures of his in the book are, are significantly older. How did he come to be in the annual? Well, that was through Chester Higgins, a photographer. He knew uh, Mr. Polk from uh, Tennessee, so he got in touch with uh, Joe Crawford and told Joe Crawford about Mr. Polk. And so that's how Mr. Polk got into the uh, Blackfoot. His photographs were in, in the Blackfoot Hours Annual. Matter of fact, we did an exhibit of Mr. Polk's work, and I printed about maybe 10 of his photographs during this time. That's uh, a little known also. That uh, Mr. Polk and Joe Crawford and I, we became pretty close friends, but Mr. Polk would call, he was closer to Joe than, than I. But, uh, but Mr. Polk would call me like 2 o'clock in the morning, he would just talk about ladies. He he didn't talk about photography. He was a ladies' man. <laughs> but anywho, that's how we got to uh, Mr. Polk. Very nice man. Very very sweet man. In in fact, he in fact that concerning the exhibit we did of his work at the Studio Museum in Harlem, he signed the uh, the program saying, "One day, uh, Buford, I hope I'm as." As good as you, so you know he was funny. He, you know, I'd say, well, I'm, I'm a, I take this, Mr. Polk, you know, but he was a, a, a giant of a photographer, and we found out about Mr. Polk through Chester Higgins. It is 40 years after after the annuals were published. The first one was 73. The last one was 1980. What's it like to see them being reengaged with public and museum interest in them again? It's it's unbelievable. You know, I'm, I'm not. Stunned? Uh, well, maybe I am, because I've always believed in the annuals, uh, but I never thought it would come to this. But it's also it's it, it's it's a it's a bittersweet recognition in the sense that it wouldn't have come about if Lou Draper hadn't passed and if he hadn't been you know born in Virginia. I don't think this this would have happened. But what happened with uh, Sarah uh, Eckhart? She was you know doing an exhibit of Lou Draper's work, and she came across the Blackfoot Towers Annual. And then she got in touch with me, and, you know, everything thought, started snowballing. So it's really if, if, you know, Lou Draper, which was a dear friend and one of the founders of Kamongi, if he hadn't passed, that this probably, probably would have never would have happened, which is sad to say. But I'm glad it did in a, in a sense, but not at the expense of, of Lou Draper passing. Well, we'll have links to all four of of the annuals. Listeners can can click through them each one, each each of the four, page by page, and then and then we'll of course also have images of the, of the pictures we discussed on unmanpodcast.com. Buford Smith, thanks so much. Thank you. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation 
as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth invites you to join us, as usual, on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. for Being There, Revisiting Tuesday Evenings at the Modern, a rebroadcast of past lectures on YouTube. Terry Thornton, Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with an online chat to follow. Visit www.themodern.org for more information. Welcome back. Next up, we'll hear my conversation with Shana Larravee, recorded earlier this year. Larravee is the director of the Hedda Stern Foundation. She joined me to discuss Hedda Stern, Imagination, and Machine at the Des Moines Arts Center. The show, which was curated by Des Moines' Jared Ledesma, features work informed by John Deere tractor plants that Fortune magazine commissioned from Stern in 1961. The show will be on view in Iowa through August 2nd. In the middle of the 20th century, Fortune magazine commissioned all manner of art for publication in, in the magazine, from Margaret Bourke White's famous and triumphalist photography to Charles Sheeler's somewhat less <laughs> famous but equally triumphalist paintings of the power and energy sector. So one of the painters Fortune commissioned in 1961 was Hedda Stern, and, and, and the paintings that Fortune commissioned in 61 are the paintings on view in Des Moines. How did Fortune land on Stern in 1961? Well, Stern had worked with Fortune once before in 1954 for a group of artists brought together to do their interpretations of Joy Manufacturing Company's continuous minor. This amounted to almost various interpretive portraits of this particular machine. And it could have been just her success at, at having done this earlier commission, I think also her relationship with the art director, Leo Leone, probably played a part. They would have known each other socially. They would have overlapped. Leone worked a number of times with the illustrator, Saul Steinberg, who was married to Hedda Stern. And though we're not exactly sure the reason that Stern was asked to take on this commission it did also make sense with the type of work that she had by the late 1950s been very well recognized for. And why did they pair her with John Deere? The John Deere, not the person, the, the tractor and machinery company. <laughs> Honestly, that's something that we just do not know. It could be that Fortune magazine wanted to do something with Hedda Stern and John Deere seemed like a good fit to them. It could have been a random kind of assignment. Um, it, I'm Tyler, I'm not sure I have a really good answer to that particular question. And here's another thing that, that I'll say, which is this, this is a little more for the, the fact of just the process of research. Hedison was not somebody who saved a lot of her correspondence. She just didn't think that that was a very important thing. She wasn't very focused on her own biography. And though she did keep an archive that has a lot of really interesting information for us, as a historian, as a researcher, 
am always disappointed to not find the direct correspondence between HEDA and Fortune magazine or anything that you would want to find giving a really clear explanation for when and why a commission was was started. It's just not present and it leaves us digging for answers in in other areas like trying to figure out who she would have been having dinner with. Hence the the allusion to Leo Leone as somebody who she and her husband Saul were socially connected with. Not unusual for American artists um, in those years that we just don't have that much diary or correspondence or related related material. Hedda Stern was also a longtime artist working with Betty Parsons Gallery. She was with the opening of the Betty Parsons Gallery in 1946, I believe. Hedda was one of the first artists listed as being represented by the gallery, and she continued to exhibit with Betty Parsons until the gallery closed with Betty's death in the 80s. But what's interesting about that, too, is that we know that many of her shows, more than 20 solo exhibitions at Betty Parsons Gallery over the time that they worked together, these shows were planned over lunches. Hedda and Betty, and we can tell in Hedda's notebooks, her her daily accounting of dentist appointments and lunches and dinners, that she was sitting down and having lunch with her friend Betty Parsons weekly. So that leads to there being no physical documents necessarily for us to recreate these exhibitions. It can be a challenge. Do you have a guess as to what Stern was doing in her work in the late 50s and early 60s that made her, you know, a so-called good fit for, for both Fortune and a John Deere-related commission? I think what made her a good fit was work that she had become fairly well known for, but that was actually work she had been doing earlier in the decade. By the late 1940s, early 1950s, the bulk of Stern's artistic production was focused on what she would term anthropographs, these anthropomorphized portraits of machines, which she found fascinatingly surreal. Her paintings of machines started in about 1947 and then continued until about 1952, 1953. In the 50s, her work started to become a little more gestural and her focus broadened more towards urban landscape, industrial landscapes, bridges, roads, further away from what what I tend to think of as machine portraiture. But certainly by the time Fortune magazine approached Stern in the late 1950s about this particular commission, they would have been familiar with her success in the earlier and the recognition she'd received for the work of the earlier part of the decade. I think of these particular paintings for John Deere as being a combination of work that she had really been more focused on in the early 50s and the late 1950s. Stern is typically thought of or grouped in with Abexers as an Abexer. She was, of course, famously one of the so-called irascibles included in a group portrait in Life magazine in early 1951. And in your essay that accompanies the exhibition, 
you note that this body of work, these these John Deere paintings, are a good example of why Stern as Abexer is a kind of strained or forced pigeonholing. But why do you think she wasn't one or doesn't quite fit? Well, I think it's it's easier to see Stern as more of a, a bridge between European modernism, particularly surrealism, and American abstract expressionism. Her work truly fits with both of those peaks. You know, she'd been born in Bucharest, Romania in 1910 and had grown up in a environment that was just a fascinating place to be a young artist. She was surrounded by some of the the founders and participants of Dada and constructivism. And in the 1930s, the, the rise of surrealism was felt in Bucharest. And she was traveling more and more to Paris and becoming familiar with the, the changing artistic scene. When she came to New York, she brought with her a lot of the language of surrealism that she had developed in Europe. And you can see that some of that stays with her throughout her work, even at moments when she seems at her, you know, incredibly in line with abstract expressionism. She does, by the 1940s and 1950s, like many of her contemporaries, become more interested in all over composition, in gestural painting, gestural abstraction. But a huge difference between Stern and her contemporaries, I think, is that she remained incredibly tethered to the physical world around her that her paintings always had some type of reference to a source. And it was often a source that was visual. Certainly you see this in the machine paintings of the 40s and the 50s. And even some of these incredibly abstract gestural pieces made with spray paint in the 1950s, even those you can see the urban landscapes, the, the bridges, the roads, the physical structures, that Stern is trying to convey in what amounts to a very abstract expressionist language. So let's talk about these 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 deer paintings. What are we seeing in them? Away from what is she abstracting, if you will? Tell me more, Tyler, about what you want to talk about. The way that they're made, the if not the objects. Yeah, let's start with what she's painting. So some of the, the, these paintings have very specific titles. Combine platform, press brake, rock shaft, control valve housing. Is she starting by looking at an actual six-cylinder engine, another title? Or is she merely referring to the existence of the thing? How is she navigating the John Deereness of the thing? Well, what we understand about her her tour of John Deere is is quite interesting. She recalled the treatment that she received as being quite unusual and unexpected. You know, here she was a you know an abstract artist from New York, brought to Moline, Illinois, Waterloo, Iowa, and flown around in this small plane from plant to plant. And she was treated like an honored member of the press. The impression that I've had in looking into 
both Fortune magazine and this particular commission is that this was a, a strange opportunity where artists were treated like de facto field reporters. They were given the privilege of of seeing the the inner workings of a company or a manufacturer and asked to, in a visual way, report on their findings without too much direction on how that should look. So when we look at these paintings, what we're seeing is a reflection of what Stern was observing in a broad-ranging tour of John Deere manufacturing plants. She was taking to spaces and she described being interested not exactly in the specific machine she's seeing, but in parts and processes. So here's Stern being taken to a manufacturing plant and seeing a variety of things. She's seeing the machines that make the machines. She's seeing finished parts of machines on the assembly line. She's seeing, in one case, a pile of discarded tractor seats which she said in her comments about the paintings, also published with Fortune magazine, that just the pile of tractor seats made an interesting design. So I think that she brought with her, probably with the blessing of Fortune, the the luxury of letting her interests fall where they were. So we're looking at, in one case, we're looking at a fairly recognizable and completed engine, a six-cylinder engine, but in other places like the rock shaft control valve housing, this is a part that you wouldn't necessarily see on a finished tractor. You know, she's, she's doing a sort of study, a sort of portrait of a part as it's coming off of the manufacturing line and before it becomes functional, before it becomes inserted into a machine, you know, never to see the light of day for the end user apart from the occasional visit to the mechanic. We'll have images of these paintings on manpodcast.com. Tractor seat is uh, an interesting painting for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's, I think it's the most abstract painting in the show. It also is a painting that I squinted at because I vaguely think I can find, vaguely, Duchamp's Bride Strip Bear in it somewhere. Um, it, it, it seems to have that kind of elliptical movement or something in it, even though there's something holding, pinning, pinning down the composition in the middle of the painting. And it's, it's like almost every painting here, a good example of how Stern is willing to do something that most of her Abex peers aren't. I mean, the, 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 her peers who are more thoroughly Abexers aren't. And that is to allow depth into the paintings, to, to not slam everything into the picture plane, for there's something to be beyond the foreground, something often nebulous. Any idea why she sort of insisted on keeping that space in, in her paintings? I think like a lot of her contemporaries, she, she was interested in light and space. And... Again, I'd bring it back to this this interest in portraying what she is seeing around her and what she is seeing existing in real time and space. One of the powers of these particular paintings, though, I think is just this, this use of spray paint, where had she not 
surrounded a number of these machine depictions with these billowing areas of lightly applied whites and blues, you wouldn't really have quite the power of that object floating towards you. I think the choice there was was made in order to convey a sort of what Stern would have called. Let me let me set that up for a second. Spray paint is a, a new thing. Stern is, of course, fascinated by American industrial technology, see John Deere. But so spray paint is patented in 1949, comes onto the market in the early 1950s, and she's using it almost immediately in her work. So she's melding subject with uh, a, a, a new technology in her field, painting, although, of course, spray paint wasn't intended for how she used it. And uh, doing it all within um, a painting language that not only did she develop, but that she allowed that new technology, spray paint, to contribute to. Absolutely. At one point when she was asked why she was using spray paint in many of her canvases, particularly in the 1950s, she, she said very dramatically that she was trying to emphasize motion and light and it couldn't be done in skywriting with jet planes. This was a tool that she had to really convey what what I see as excitement and enthusiasm for the the kind of the speed and the motion, the sounds and the the textures of urban living. Yeah, there's a there's a very urban feel to almost well to a lot of her painting. And so these are these are paintings of uh, industrial machinery created in in the Midwest, often in the Quad Cities region. And yet they feel super urban, super gritty. So how how did Fortune end up using these? How did Fortune, what did Fortune do with them? Well, Fortune took, took the pieces and ran them in their July 1961 issue in a six-page spread. And it was treated really as its, its own individual profile. The paintings were reproduced beautifully in color and paired with quotes by Stern about what she was seeing. It's interesting, some of the things that she has to say, you know, Fortune adds some of its own commentary, but overall, the piece they publish is left to be the artist's interpretation of what she's seeing. The the title of the article is The Artist in Tractor Works, a Portfolio of Paintings by Hedda Stern. And I think that that sums it up pretty pretty simply. The, the other part of it that's kind of crucial and fast, fascinating is this spread is in Fortune's biggest issue of, of the year, of every year. Um, it's, the, it's in the Fortune 500 issue in, in uh, the summer of 61. Finally, how did these paintings end up, uh, all seven of them, at John Deere? Was that part of the original plan or did the company just like them and get them? It was not. It was not part of the original plan. You know, Fortune's interest in these works was the commission was strictly for the images for reproduction. The paintings themselves stayed with Hedda Stern after the article had ran. And it was not until about 1964 that she was contacted through the Betty Parsons Gallery by the CEO of John Deere. At the time, by 1964, I believe, the Deere and Company had just opened its brand new headquarters in Moline, Illinois. 
designed by Eero Saarinen. And the company's then CEO, William Hewitt, went about from that point forward collecting work to fill the halls and to to warm the the space for the employees and i think it's really wonderful that his for all for everything that we can tell his first acquisition potentially for the john deere and company art collection were these paintings by Hedda Stern. It would have been, I suppose, an obvious choice, but I think it was a brilliant choice as well. It was never a given that the work would have been acquired by Deere and Company, but in fact it was. The work was still in Stern's collection, and the the company was able to purchase the full suite of seven paintings, three on canvas and four on heavy paper. And they've been a part of the Deer and Company art collection ever since. Shana Larrabee, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.